you know, when you weigh and just think and count up all that is broken in this world, just re- reading the newspaper, when you see crime and death and corruption and calamity, all that stuff, all of it comes out of half of a Bible verse. Not even the whole thing, just half. In the passage I'm preaching from today in Genesis, when we come to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6b, the second half of it, it says, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There Eve takes and eats, and Adam takes and eats. And with those two simple words, take and eat, we are plunged into all the problems. His scholars call it the fall of humanity, the fall. We've fallen from grace, and we've fallen into death and brokenness. One scholar said something that I found very interesting about those words, take and eat. He says the verbs take and eat describe a very simple act in the garden. The act, however, required a very costly remedy, for the Lord himself would have to taste death before these verbs would become for us words of salvation. This is my body, take and eat. He has to go to death in order to be able to offer us that kind of life. But it was through this very simple act of disobedience that caused us to fall. And this morning, I want to, my, my main proposition to you is this, that Jesus stood where Adam and Eve fell. We're starting this Lenten season. This is the first Sunday of Lent. And we will see Jesus stepping into our brokenness to fix things, to heal us, to reverse, to cast the curse away and bring blessing, to redeem. So I've taken as a subtitle, By His Wounds We Are Healed, which comes right from Isaiah 53. It is through Jesus coming and tasting death that we then are are given life. So what we'll see in the next couple of Sundays are titles like this. Jesus stood where Adam and Eve fell. Jesus pierces the skeptic's darkness. Jesus enters into our shame. Jesus judges the heart. And Jesus then steps into the grave. And that will lead us right up to Holy Week, from Palm Sunday and then through the events of Holy Week. So this morning, we're looking at Jesus standing in temptation where Adam and Eve fell. I think it's interesting. I did a, I did a computer search of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looking for Adam as I was studying this passage. And you know, his name only occurs once in all four of the Gospels. And it's only in Luke's gospel, and it's part of a genealogy. But it's kind of weird. Um, It's intentional on Luke's part for us to see something. I think Luke wants us to see the exact proposition I've put before us, that Jesus stood where Adam fell. And what happens in Luke's gospel is we see Jesus baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and then the Lord affirms him, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then in the other Gospels, he's driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. But in Luke's Gospel, he inserts something right there that is really, it seems cumbersome. It, it, goes, it goes into the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of the son of the son of the son of the son of, and it keeps going all the way down, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then chapter four, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, went out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan right after Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God, and then here's Jesus. And I think what Luke wants us to see is that where Adam fell and failed, Jesus stood and succeeded. Jesus was able to do what they were not able to do in that garden. 
Now, we're going to look at Genesis rather than the Luke passage there. Um, and you're welcome to go to a Bible. I think it's always helpful to have a pew Bible or your Bible in front of you. This is Genesis 2 and then into chapter 3. And when we read Genesis, it generates lots of questions. Lots of questions. But God has given us exactly what we need to live this life and to come to salvation and to know him. So there are some questions that he just doesn't see fit to answer. So, uh, you know, I've got a number of questions. I, I actually, I got the, the grunt from my Old Testament professor because he knew the question was coming and I was the one to ask it. Where did the dinosaurs fit in the creation account? And he rolled his eyes and he went, oh, there it is. Right? And there are other questions. I mean, really, honestly, there, there are some really big questions that God does not see fit to give us the answer to. Like, where did the serpent come from? What's the backstory on that? Why is he in the garden? Why is this perfect garden marred by him? Or a question I have is, why is there this dangerous tree, this forbidden tree right in the middle of the garden? Why is it there? I don't know. We don't, we don't know. It's not just I don't know. Scholars cannot answer that question. Another question I really like is, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? <laughs> Think about it. Right? Now, I want to I tell you there are two questions that this passage does answer because we need to know the answer. And they are, is God good? And the other one is, does sin result in death? Satan says no to both. The tempter says, no, he is not good. He cannot be trusted. And he says, surely you won't die. Oh, go ahead. Have a little fun. You'll be fine. He's not serious. Right? And that is still the temptation today. That is still the same. I mean, that's the same stuff we deal with. We question God's goodness, and then we engage in sin and rebellion. And I want to suggest the opposite. I want to say, Satan says, doubt God, but pursue sin. And I want to say, pursue God, but doubt sin. Question it. Question whether or not sin will give you life or death. The scriptures tell us that death is the result of sin and rebellion. But, you know, the thing about sin is there's, there's always something appealing about it, something savory. There is a reward, like the drug addict. You get a high when you take the hit, but then the high diminishes each time, and then you sell more and more of yourself to get more, to less and less of a return until you are totally destroyed. That's the nature of addiction, and sin, we're addicted to sin. And so it gradually destroys us. It fails us. But there is something about it that we like that's enticing, and we, we start flirting with the question of whether or not this is a bad thing, you know, whether, whether it's, you know, a big thing, lying, stealing, something outside, or something that's more internal. Whatever it is, there is a temptation for us to think it's not going to lead to death. This won't hurt. This, yeah, it's just a little fun, you know. We think that sin is harmless at first. I came across um, a work of literature that I'd never read before or heard of um, by Oscar Wilde called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Maybe some of you know it. It's, it's a, a short story. It's very fascinating. This young, handsome man named Dorian Gray is having his portrait painted by a gifted painter. And as, as he's um, uh, painting, there is a wealthy aristocrat named Lord Henry who comes and just hangs out with the painter while he does his work. But as he's hanging out, he is, he is uh, championing his hedonistic lifestyle. He has given in to all of his passions, and he's just totally full-blown indulging everything, and he's making light of it, like it's normal and good and you should do it. 
And it's starting to tempt and cause Dorian Gray to long for similar things. And he wishes out loud, sort of to himself, but he wishes that this perfect picture of his youthfulness and handsome appearance and vitality, that, that the picture, that he would always be like the picture. And what happens in sort of an Alfred Hitchcock twist is his wish comes true and that in, the, in his physical body, whatever would happen, aging, the results of sin, the effects of his actions, instead of appearing on him, it appears on this portrait that he's had painted. And he, he hurts a woman in a relationship badly and then goes home to find that the picture has become a little bit grotesque. It started to corrupt and he's disturbed by that. And um, and then he goes to try and fix something, but he can't fix it. And he figures, since I can't resolve that one, I might as well just indulge. And he locks the picture in a closet for 18 years. And he is still, of course, looking very handsome, very put together. He's the, the picture of health. But he's indulging all these things, every, the hedonistic lifestyle totally. And when the painter hears about this and he questions it, he brings them to the painting, unlocks the door, goes in, and they both are aghast at how grotesque and ugly the painting has become. Because what is happening in this story is the painting is giving an outward and visible picture of the state of his inward soul. Meanwhile, his flesh looks normal. See, he's tempted to think that his actions won't have a consequence. He's tempted to think that sin won't really hurt. It doesn't lead to death. But the picture is just showing it one after another after another. Then he decides he's going to fix it by doing good stuff. Of course, his motives are not pure. And then he goes back, and it's even worse than it was before. So he gets really frustrated. And there's an awesome ending, which I'm not going to give away, because my wife said, don't spoil this one. People might want to read it. So the picture of Dorian Gray. But it gives the illustration that we think, we think that sin is harmless. It's playful. It's fun. And the scriptures say it leads to death. It's quite the opposite. Lent is about a reversal of that temptation. Instead of questioning God and pursuing sin, Lent is about questioning our sin and pursuing God. It's about turning that around. Now, I want to look specifically at the text, and I want to compare. I want to compare what God says, then what Eve says. She's not very good in her Bible study. She has not memorized God's word much. Here's the command. And the Lord God commanded the man. Now, I, I will say, maybe Adam didn't relay this well to Eve. It could be on him. Okay? She was not even there yet. So, we don't know. We don't know. That's a question I have. Scripture does not see fit to answer that for us. But it does say this. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you, you shall surely die. Twice the word surely is in there. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But if you eat of this other tree, you will surely die. So the tempter comes to Eve and says, Did God actually say you may not eat of any of the trees? Which, of course, is not even close to what he said. Quite the opposite. He said, Every tree you shall surely eat of except one. The tempter comes and twists it and says, did God actually say you can't eat of any of these trees? And it's in that moment that Eve shows us that she doesn't quite have a good command of what God said. And the Shorleys drop out, right? The Shorleys drop out. It says, it, she said to the serpent, we may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
And there in the scriptures enters in the first pharisaical movement. Neither shall you touch it. That's man-made rules, taste not, handle not, touch not. If, if I just don't touch it, I don't have to worry about it. Do you know that the, the Jews had come up with a way not to take the Lord's name in vain? They just never said the Lord's name. Quite literally. If you study Hebrew, they have a way of saying God's name without saying his name. They've taken the vowels from one word and they've placed them on the consonants from another one. It's where you get the word Jehovah instead of saying God's name, which is Yahweh, which means I am, and the word Adonai, which means Lord, they take the vowels of one, stick it on the consonants of another, and create a word which isn't even a word, Jehovah. And so when they read through the scriptures, a Hebrew, uh, a Jew would be reading the Hebrew scriptures, and they would come across the word Yahweh, but it would say Jehovah, and they would say Adonai, but everybody meant, knew they meant Yahweh. That's crazy. But the thinking was, if I just add that extra rule in, then I don't have to worry about taking the Lord's name in vain because I won't say it at all ever, which is not God's intent. So neither shall you touch the tree, but that's not the rule. That's not the law. And the Shoreleys have dropped off. So again, it has, it has diminished and minimized the blessing of God. Surely you shall eat from every tree of the garden, and surely if you eat of the one that I've forbidden, you will die. So now it's just, yeah, we may eat of the trees, but not this one, or we'll die. So there's an extreme thing going on here. God blesses, and she totally misses the abundance of his blessing. And I think we do as well. God is good. He loves us. He is so generous and kind. He's made this amazing garden. He's given Adam and Eve as companions. He's put them at the pinnacle of all his creation. He's put them in this perfect place. There's one simple tree that they can't eat from, and that's where, of course, their focus is. But all these other trees are there, and they sort of miss that. See, what the, what the tempter does, and he still does it today, is he takes our eyes off of God's goodness and puts it on some little thing over here and starts sowing the seeds of malcontent. It says right before she fails, she, she, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. So the, Satan starts to get us to look at the wrong thing. Lent is about us looking at the right thing, looking at how good God is and how much he loves us. He is a provider and a protector. So he provides all the trees, and then he provides protection from the one that would harm them. But do not eat of this other tree, or you will surely die. That's in no unclear terms. He wants to protect them. He's a provider and a protector. And what Satan would do is have them think that he's quite the opposite. He's not good. He's not good. And that, and that tree is something that is good. He turns it around. God's not only good before they sin. We might think, okay, well, he was kind, and they were doing what they were supposed to, but now that they've disobeyed him, he's going to be against them. But he's not. And as I started our worship service this morning with a call to worship, that God pursues us. When they sinned, they became sh full of shame, and they hid from God, and they were hiding from him. Our sin causes us to hide from God because his holiness is terrifying to us. But what God does is he pursues us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He is a God who goes into the midst of sin to save us out of it. And what our sin does is it causes us to back away from him in fear. But we see God who's still being good and pursuing them after they have failed. So right away, the curse comes down. God pronounces the curse on the serpent and says, you are cursed to go on your belly. You'll crawl on your belly all your days. And I will put enmity, hatred, between your offspring and her offspring. And you 
will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. Now scholars call that the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the first good news. Right there is a hint that that cross is coming. Now nobody, nobody could figure that out until after the cross actually happened. But now that the cross has happened and we look back, we go, oh yeah, I get it now. And that's how we should read the scriptures, to be honest. It's good to do that. It's like when you've seen a movie that's a mystery for the first time, you're kind of caught off guard by it. But then when you go back and read it the second time or, or watch the movie the second time, now you're seeing how all the puzzle pieces fit together to build things up to build it up. Like in the story here, um, right when Adam and Eve are both uh, married, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Well, why would they have to add that? That seems weird. It's describing something that's not there. Well, the reason is because when they fail, they're going to become ashamed. So the story is written in such a way that we should keep going back to it for the details to see how the truth of God unfolds. What is, what is going to happen? You will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. So Christ comes and he does that very thing. He dies. That is a major bruise. He dies on that cross. But in so doing, he defeats Satan and he wins a people to God. He overcomes death. He overcomes the tempter. Satan and sin in the world are defeated by cross, by the cross of Jesus. And it's an offer for us then of new life. Now some will say, looking at Adam and Eve, it's not fair. You know, it's not fair. I like how Shelley Tebow used to answer that when children would come and say, it's not fair. She'd say, the fair comes once a year and you missed it. <laughs> but we look at this and we think, I didn't get the choice. I wasn't there. Eve didn't bring the apple to me. It's not fair. And again, that question can be used as a temptation to take our eyes off of what is available and look at something that's not there for us. Don't do that and miss the fact that yes, one man sinned, and through his sin, all of humanity, humanity was plunged into death and destruction and all the problems. Yes, that is true. But one man stood, and through that one man, forgiveness is available for everyone. That's not fair either. Recognize that. Don't get caught up on the Adam part. Be caught up on the Jesus part. One man did stand where the other fell. That's amazing. That's good news. That's the gospel. We see the interconnectedness of people here, that through Adam, all of the people fell. But there's also interconnectedness in Christ, that he is the head of a new people, and all who are in him now are one. That's why we exchange the peace. It's not to greet your neighbors. It's to exchange the peace of God. We're reconciled with God and with one another. He's put back together what was lost. This is all part of the redemption. Don't ask the wrong questions. Dig into Lent. By doubting your sin. Doubt it. Look at it and say, is this blessing me? Is this serving me? Reject it. And then look at God and say, is he good? How is he good? You know, his mercies are new for us every single day. And what that means is that there are things in our life, in your life today, there are things that will harm you, but a good God has mercy for you. He is looking out for you. He is pursuing you. Eve didn't know the word of God very well. And so she was she was subjected to a tough temptation and failed. Jesus knew the word perfectly. So in the garden when he's tempted, you know, if you're hungry, if you're the son of God, turn this bread into stone. How does he respond? Straight out of scripture. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh, okay, well, I know the scriptures too, says Satan. And he says, well, 
He's, throw yourself off the temple. It says he won't let you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus turns right around and says, yeah, but it also is written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And then he says, look at all this glory of the world. I'll give it to you if you'll worship me. How does Jesus answer? He knows the scriptures. He goes right to the word and he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then Satan leaves him. So in Lent, let's dig into the scriptures. Let's start to know God's word. And as you do, look for the goodness Look for the goodness of God and the blessings. He's so abundant in his provision and in his protection. The reason that he gives us the law is to protect us. The reason that he looks out, he's looking out for us is because he loves us. And what Satan says is, no, he doesn't. He's bad and sin is good. And Lent is a time to reverse that and say, no, sin is bad. It's killing me. But God is good and he loves me. In a little bit, we're going to go to the Lord's table. And I want to encourage you to think of those two words, take and eat. And it was very costly for Jesus to be able to say, this is my body, take it and eat it. He's offering us life in place of death. That's who our God is. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you and we are so unworthy of this good news. I pray for each one of us now that by your spirit, you would write your word deep into our hearts. That what is true about you would give us the strength that we need to overcome temptation. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Amen.